Hey, how would you answer if someone were to ask you the question, who are you? Who are you? Well, if it were a police officer who just pulled me over for driving too fast, which of course would never happen, completely hypothetical, uh, I'd likely show them my driver's license, right? This is who I am. But what if I didn't have a driver's license? Who am I now? You know, if I was traveling and a customs agent from another country asked me the same question, who are you? I would likely pull out my my passport and I would show it to them. I am a Canadian citizen. But what if I didn't have a passport to prove my identity? Who am I now? You know, if I was at a party or an event and someone I didn't know asked me, hey, who are you? I'd likely say something like, well, I'm a, I'm a father or I'm a husband. Um, I'm a Leafs fan. I, I, actually, I probably wouldn't lead with that one. I might tell them what I did for a living. But what if, God forbid, those things were taken away from me too? Who am I now? You know, how we answer the question, who are you, when everything we place our identity in can change or be taken from us is a really interesting thing. It's actually a question that has plagued humankind since the beginning of time in this huge, mysterious universe. Who am I? Because who we are matters. In fact, identity is is everything. You know, who we believe ourselves to be, it dictates how we live in every area of our lives. If we believe that we are strong and and capable and loved and, and gifted, well, guess what? We will do the things that strong and capable and loved and, and gifted people do, right? Conversely, if we believe ourselves to, to be incapable unloved, shameful. Well, that's going to have ramifications too, isn't it? You know, in his landmark book, The Invisible Man, written about the injustices of slavery in America in the early 20th century, Ralph Ellison's unnamed narrator says a really true statement, a really incredible statement. He says, when I discover who I am, I'll be free. When I discover who I am, I'll be free. And it's true, but the problem is most of us aren't free because we don't know who we are. Because the things that we place our identity in are fragile and they can be taken away from us. And we can easily become slaves to who the the world tells us who we are or, or how people label us or most importantly, how we view ourselves, who we believe ourselves to be. And so who are you? Who are you? You know, our our series in 1 Peter is called A New Day, A New Way. And it is a new day because Peter tells us that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, someone who has accepted God's free gift of salvation that's available in Christ, 
you have a brand new identity. Okay, we, we know this. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us so. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Okay, it, it's like God has given us a brand new ID card that never expires, that can never be taken away from us because it's signed in the blood that Jesus redeemed us with. And as 1 Peter chapter 2 begins in verse 4, Peter starts to talk about this, our new identity. He starts to talk about how Jesus is like a a stone who's going to cause some people to stumble, a rock that's going to make them fall. But... For those who believe they're going to be built into a spiritual house, God is building something new here. And those who believe will never be put to shame because of their faith. And what they'll discover in Jesus is so rich, is so beautiful, is so profound, is so precious, it will change everything. You know, this is is fascinating to me. Peter is talking about a new identity Okay, Peter, let's consider his resume for just a second. Can we do that together? Peter wholeheartedly abandons his former life upon an invitation to follow Jesus. Peter becomes a a part of Jesus' inner circle and witnesses firsthand the most incredible supernatural events the world has ever seen. Peter walks on water ever so briefly because he took his eyes off of Jesus. But hey, the other guys didn't get out of the boat. You know what I mean? Peter invited up the mountain of transfiguration to see Jesus and Moses and Elijah, one of only three human beings to have that honor. Peter upon his accurate declaration of who Jesus was, Jesus, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus gives him the coolest nickname, The Rock. Okay, sorry, Dwayne Johnson, but Peter had the name before you. And then Jesus tells him he's going to build his church on his back. That's pretty awesome. Peter has a major setback denying Jesus after his arrest, but has an amazing bounce back after Jesus restores him. Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit and then converts 3,000 people with his very first sermon. That's not a bad way to begin your preaching career. Peter (laughs) becomes the most influential leader in the biggest church on the planet in Jerusalem, Peter, oh yeah, is the very first person to tell the world that guess what? This good news, this gospel, this news of reconciliation with God and eternity in paradise with him, it's not just for the Jews. Welcome to the family, Gentiles. That's not a bad resume. Like if I'm writing this letter, I might might lead with some of that stuff. You know what I'm saying? If I'm Peter and someone were to ask me, so who are you? I'd be like, um, I'm Peter. Have you ever opened a Bible? 
but Peter does not. Peter does not because he understood the danger and the futility of finding his identity in any other place than in Jesus Christ himself. And so he only mentions his new creation identity in the very first verse of this book. Peter, who are you? I'm Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. My identity is fully that. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. Hey, listen to what blogger Melissa Crutchfield says about the potential of discovering our new identity in Jesus by carrying our our God-given ID card. It frees us up to live confidently and stably instead of changing who we are based on the opinions of others, our professional success, how we see ourselves, and all the other ways we define our significance. It gives us the opportunity to experience God's unconditional love in new and fresh ways. And it allows us to confidently and boldly share his love with others. It is certainly a battle as we live in a world that seeks to define us by its own standards, but the battle is worth it. Because as we fight it, the world around us changes. That sounds awesome to me. In fact, that sounds revolutionary. And so what does it mean to find our identity in Jesus? Who are we? Well, let's find out. Please turn in your Bible or on your device to this letter that we're considering in our series, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Who are you? Big question, important question, a question that can determine the course of our lives. Well, in these two verses we're about to read, Peter doesn't ask that question. Rather, he makes a statement Okay, not who are you, question mark, but this is who you are, exclamation point. Let's read the text together. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, it says this, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Who are you? No, who you are. You are acceptable, verse nine, but you are a chosen people. It's who you are. Okay, let's be honest. Most of us spend a significant portion of our lives trying to earn acceptance, right? From our parents and our friends and our teachers, our coaches, our work colleagues, our bosses, our spouses, maybe even from our churches. You know, from the clothes that we wear to the car that we drive to the houses we live in, give the me that we portray on social media, you know, I always kind of laugh when people post some kind of message or something like that says, like, I'm just me. Like it or or lump it. This is who I am. And like, I don't care if you accept me or not. And I'm always like, of course you care. Like if you're totally at peace with who you are and didn't crave acceptance, you you wouldn't feel the need to tell the world on, on Facebook. 
right? We would get that dopamine rush when we get a like on our post. You know, the masks that we wear, they all scream, like me, accept me. And we do all these really weird and exhausting things to be accepted. Hey, remember playing games on the schoolyard when you were a kid and like the two best players would divide up teams in the most cruel fashion. One by one, they would choose the player that they wanted on their team. Right, and we'd stand there thinking, please choose me, please choose me. Like, I don't want to be last. And if you were ever left until like the last two or three players, you know exactly what I'm talking about and you know exactly how that felt. Not good. Okay, well, that tension does not go away when we leave the schoolyard. That tension follows us the rest of our lives Right? Because we know the real us. We know our faults. We know our weaknesses. We know our insecurities. And, and we're not sure if we're acceptable. You know, there's a true story about a young man, a soldier, who called his parents in San Francisco right near the end of the Korean War. And like they were thrilled to hear from their boy. It had been a long time. Like who wouldn't be? He's calling, he's calling. So they kind of both got on, you know, one receiver, one downstairs, one upstairs. And as the conversation continued, the man's, his, his tone, the soldier's tone, it became more serious. And he said, hey, uh, mom and dad, I want, I want to ask you something important. I was going to bring a buddy home with me that got injured in, in battle. And I won't, sugarcoat it. He's in rough shape. In fact, he's missing an eye and one of his arms was so badly injured, it had to come off. As did one of his legs. And his parents thought about it and they said, well, he sounds like a, a brave guy. Like, We'd be honored to have him come and stay at our house as a guest. And their son said, no, sorry, you misunderstand me. I want him to live with us. Like forever. He needs to be cared for. And suddenly his parents, they understood the gravity of what their son was asking. And they're like, son, like, have you thought about this? Like, I'm, I'm not sure you're being realistic about this. Have you thought this through? Someone with with those serious of defects, of disabilities, they're going to be a constant drain on on us and on you. You He's going to hold you back. You're not being reasonable. Like we feel bad, but like I I don't think this is a good idea. I'm not sure we can accept him into our, our family like that. I'm sorry. And the, the phone clicked dead. And the next day, the parents received the news that their son had taken his own life. And when they received the body, they looked down with incredible sorrow and unspeakable remorse at their boy, who had one eye, one arm, and one leg. It's heartbreaking. 
See, if his parents had known that their son was actually talking about himself, I'm sure they would have wholeheartedly welcomed him. They would have accepted him. The problem was their son didn't see himself as acceptable. And behind the masks of our disabilities and the ugliness of what this world sometimes does to us, our lives still scream, like me. Please, accept me. We ask the question, am I acceptable with all my flaws, with all my shortcomings, with all my disabilities? Like, I just want to be known. I just want to be loved. I just want to be accepted. Listen, if you only take one thing away from this, let it be these three words. God likes you. He's already accepted you. He knows your weaknesses. He understands your your faults and your insecurities. He doesn't want to leave us the same. He wants to transform us. But in the midst of all this, God still picks you first. The one's chosen by God. Wow. From nothing to something, from rejected to accepted. You know, we spend a lot of time kind of focusing on on us, on our accepting Jesus into our lives, but do we spend as much time realizing and thinking that Christ has accepted us? And we don't have to earn it. And we don't have to prove ourselves. You know, I love Psalm 2710. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Okay, though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. See, all of us are born with this deep need to belong. We desire to be accepted just the way we are, no strings attached, but we soon discover that the world demands strings. And we get exhausted and we get tangled up in these strings of acceptance and it's exhausting, isn't it? Well, underneath the roar of the voices in your life, screaming at you and telling you who you must be to be accepted, listen to the whisper of Jesus saying, come. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, in this world of conditions, look this way, act this way, get these marks, jump through this hoop, God offers us unconditional love and acceptance and he says, come as you are. I've chosen you. You're acceptable. Hey, what would it look like if we lived in that freedom, fully accepted children of the most high God? And what would it look like if we offered that kind of acceptance to a world yearning to belong? 
an exhausted world just waiting for the strings of acceptance that they've been tied up in to be severed by the grace and love of God and his people. But you are a chosen people. Hey, could we, could we just say that together? I am accepted. I am accepted. That sounds good. Doesn't that feel good? That's true. Hey, let's keep going. You are capable. You are a royal priesthood. It's who you are. Okay, what's Peter talking about? You might be thinking, hey, I'm not a priest. But God says, if you're a follower of Jesus, you actually are. Okay, this is something commonly known as the priesthood of believers, meaning God has not just called professional clergy to be his spokespeople, but he's called every person who comes to him through Jesus to be his spokespeople. You know, in the same way, Peter started his letter by saying, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, apostle meaning sent one. We could say the same thing, like Bob, an apostle of Jesus Christ, or Sarah, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And and not just any priest, but a royal priest, meaning you are a priest of, of the king, a priest in the new kingdom that Jesus came and that he established. And you know, to kind of get a sense of how important that role is, being a priest, you have to go back to the Old Testament. See, in the Old Testament, priests did a lot of things, but I think you could kind of like sum up their role, the priestly role, in three basic terms. Sacrifice, okay, serve others in the name of God, and make, make sacrifices for God's people. Intercession, pray for others to God and proclamation, speak to others about God, sacrifice, intercession, proclamation. And as his royal priests, God calls us to serve our world in his name, sacrifice, to pray for the deep needs of our world, to intercede and to proclaim his love and his greatness to a world that doesn't know him. Proclamation, those are our our priestly duties. In his book, Ministries of Mercy, The Call of the Jericho Road, author and pastor Tim Keller, he writes this summarization of our role as royal priests. Here's a description. To spread the kingdom of God is more than simply winning people to Christ. It is also working for the healing of persons, families, relationships, and nations. It is doing deeds of mercy and seeking justice. It is ordering lives and relationships and institutions and communities according to God's authority to bring in the blessedness of the kingdom. You know, I think that's a great description of our priestly duties. Intimidated yet? That's a big job. (laughs) But with the the power of the Holy Spirit in us, it's a job that God calls us to and believes we can do. In fact, the church, like us, we are God's plan A to bring his kingdom into this earth. And there is no plan B. 
And you might think when, when you hear that, God, what are you thinking? Like, do you even know me? <laughs> do you know my limitations? Do you know my weaknesses? Do you know my, my failures, my past, my fears? You might want to look for another priest. <laughs> Listen, God knows what he's doing. When he called you to himself to be a royal priest, he knew you would be capable of everything he was going to call you to do, or he wouldn't have called you to the priesthood, but he did. God wants to do more through you than you could ever dream or imagine. It's no coincidence that every hero in the Bible who did extraordinary things for God was a broken and flawed human being. People who simply trusted and obeyed that despite their frailties, the awesome God of creation could work through them. His glory pouring through the cracks of their their fears and their regrets and their mistakes, their limitations. He made them capable. You might not believe in yourself, but God believes in you. He believes you are capable. He knows for everything he's called you to do, you are capable. You are his royal priest. No matter what limitations others have placed on you, no matter what limitations you've placed on yourself, he's called you to be a royal priest. And that means he calls you capable. Listen, while we're busy doubting ourselves, God is busy seeing Christ in us, the hope of glory. And because of that, he says, you are capable, rise up and step into your destiny, royal priest. Who else are you? (laughs) Peter says, this is who you are. You are valuable. You are a people for his possession. Okay, how much are you worth? Have you ever thought about that? I wonder how much I'm worth. You know, we live in a world that places more value on net worth than self-worth. And we live in a culture that has cheapened the value of life. And because of that, we've been deceived and led astray when it comes to understanding just how valuable we are. You know, there, there are basically two determining factors to determine how valuable something is. Number one, who owned it in the past? And number two, what is somebody willing to pay for it? Here's what I mean. Who owned it? Okay, if I were to price a early 1960s white Fender Stratocaster guitar, it would likely set me back about 2000 bucks. But if I were to price the early 1960s vintage white Fender Stratocaster guitar that Jimi Hendrix owned... Let's just say I'd have to remortgage my house. Okay. Who owns something helps determine the value of it. And number two, what is somebody willing to pay for it? Yeah, I have a set, a complete set of 1989 upper deck baseball cards. I got the whole series in a Rubbermaid tub in our basement. And a few years back, I was kind of digging through, cleaning up the basement, and I came across that tub, and I opened it, and I said, oh, yeah, I forgot about these, these baseball cards. And so I called my son downstairs. I said, get down here. Look at these beauties. One day, these will 
all be yours. And his immediate response, it, it was not, oh, cool, dad, like a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card. No, his initial response was, oh, how much are they worth? And I told him, son, they're worth exactly what somebody is willing to pay for them. <laughs> not a penny more, <laughs> and not a penny less. Well, based on that criteria, the Bible tells us that the market value of us is priceless. We are a people of his possession. God owns us. You are a possession of the majestic, sovereign God who is above everyone else. We belong to God. And what was he willing to pay to attain us? Well, 1 Corinthians 7, 23 says, you've been bought and paid for by Christ. The God of the universe deemed you valuable enough to exchange his own son for you. You were worth Jesus suffering and dying on the cross. You know, we, we, we look at a black book, right, to determine the value of a car. Well, we use this book to determine our value. The cross proves how valuable you are. Your life and all lives are incredibly valuable, my friends, because God owns you. He owns us and because he paid the steepest price to get us. Which leads to, to my last point today. Who are you? You are forgivable. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, unlike us, who so often see the faults of others and our own faults and think they're unforgivable. We don't forgive easily. God looks at us and he forgives freely. God doesn't rub our sins in, he rubs them out. He doesn't rehearse them over and over, he forgets them. This kind of mercy, this kind of forgiveness, it didn't come cheap. <laughs> Obviously, it came through the, and only it came through the blood poured out from Jesus when he died to make it possible. That's how we can be forgiven. It's not cheap, but it is powerful. And it is all-encompassing. And it is free. And it is yours if you're a child of God. Once you had not received mercy. But now you have received mercy. Man, I just love that it's Peter writing this. The man who denied that he even knew Jesus. Who hid in his darkest hour. Can you imagine the shame and the guilt associated with that? became the man who was forgiven and restored by Jesus in his finest hour. I love that. Like we just watched two baptism videos from people who know exactly what Peter's talking about here. Two people who just like, like you and me continually 
fall short of the, the glory of God, but believed more in his grace than the power of their sin. They believe more in God's offer of mercy than the world's offer of acceptance. They believe they were forgivable and they are. As they came, as they repented, as they fell on mercy, they've experienced the freedom of what it feels like to be clean and spotless and forgiven. See, there was a day when they had not received mercy, but now they have. That day is gone. It's a new day. As they came to God, they didn't find an accuser keeping count of their sins and failures. They found a savior wanting to forgive them. There's not anything you have done that is beyond God's forgiveness because there's not anything greater than the blood of Jesus that paid for it. So maybe it's time to forgive yourself. Maybe it's time to stop being defined by who the world says you are. Maybe it's time to start finding your identity in the one who searches you, who knows you. The one who knows when you sit and when you rise the one who knows your thoughts from afar, the one who knows your heart's cry before it's even on your tongue, the one who saw your unformed body and ordained every day that you would live before one of them even came to be. Let him define you. Who am I? No. I'm a fully accepted, sovereignly capable, eternally valuable, always forgivable child of God. It's who you are. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this, this reminder, or maybe for some, this is the first time that they've heard who you see them to be, who you declare them to be. And God, I, I pray in the midst of this life and this world that seeks to define us by its own standards, we would hear your voice above all other voices telling us who we are. That we would hear your voice reminding us how you see us. And God, that it would change the way we live. Father, I pray for those that, that really struggle with words that have been spoken over their lives about who they are, 
and that they believe those, that in this moment they would choose to leave the lies behind and embrace the identity that you have given them. That they are now in Christ. And when you see them, you see them through his righteousness. And therefore they can boldly come to you. Receiving your love. Walking in your forgiveness. And experiencing the great things that you are calling them to do. God, help us find our identity in you, we pray. And the one who made this all possible, Jesus, our Savior. Amen.